Dear Heavenly Father, we come again before you. We thank you that you uh, give us the written word, that you preserve this word for us down throughout the ages. Lord, we pray that you would illumine our minds and our hearts, help us to understand and believe and trust you as you speak to us from this word, your word. Help us, Lord, we pray as we hear and learn and as the word is proclaimed before you, before us now, dear Heavenly Father. And we thank you that the Spirit uses the preaching and teaching of this word to encourage and sustain our lives. And for this, we give you our utmost thanks. And we ask now, Heavenly Father, that you would give us a great delight in you as we hear you speaking to us from it. Lord, we pray, arrest our attention, that we would give our worship and our focus and our love and indeed our attention to you now as we hear it. Lord, let the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, we pray. This is our prayer, O Lord, and we pray it in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. 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 Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Please give your, your full attention. This is the word of our God. This is after Paul's lengthy discussion of the gospel, of our predicament, of our standing, and our access in the gospel through Christ to come before him. And he says this, Romans 12, 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. <clears throat> so for the reading of God's word, the grass withers and the flowers fall, but this word of the Lord endures forever. May he indeed add his blessing to it at this time. <clears throat> Well, I wonder if you've ever asked if there's a pattern of worship found in the Bible. <clears throat> if someone were to ask you about the biblical pattern of worship, what would you tell them? To where would you point them? Is there a pattern of worship found in the pages of Scripture where we can direct those who inquire? Worship, as we saw last week, is an amazing and glorious gift from God to his people. It is the center of our lives as God's people. It is the core of our, the rhythm of our lives as his people, his assembled church, his people in this world. It's a glorious foretaste that God gives us of what we will be doing for all of eternity right? Worshiping the Lord. And so it's important that we have some grasp on what we're doing here as we come. And so this morning, we're going to continue in our look at worship, and we're going to look at the divine pattern of biblical worship, the divine pattern of biblical worship. Um, I'm sure that many of you, when you hear the word uh, not many of you, I'm, heard that, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that you're aware that for many, when they hear the word uh, liturgy, 
Um, what do they think of? They immediately think of what? Oh, Roman Catholicism or Episcopalianism or maybe even High Lutheranism. It's a dirty word for many as they hear the word liturgy. But what is it? Why use that word? Well, we want to be careful not to uh, forfeit perfectly good language to the enemy um, and not use it anymore. We want to use the word rightly, right? Liturgy, the word comes from the word uh, latria, which means just service. It's service. It's descriptive of what the work of the priest would do in the Old Testament. Uh, in Romans 12, 1, when it says reasonable service or reasonable worship, that's the word that it uses, latria. It's service on God's behalf. <clears throat> Every church has a liturgy. Uh, it's merely what is done in worship. Right? It's merely what is done. And so liturgy has become a bad word for many, sadly. In broader evangelicalism, as well as some uh, other traditions, uh, some fixed on certain times and geographies, or some that are, have a reactionary impulse. It need not be a dirty word, though. Many churches who have a purposeful liturgy order of worship are simply deliberate and thoughtful about what they do, right? What should determine our liturgy? What is it that should uh, dictate what we do in our worship? Well, it's the word of God, of course, um, as most all of you would agree. <clears throat> what is new covenant worship, right? What does it look like? What are we doing? Is there a pattern of worship in the Bible? What is it? What is that pattern? What is new covenant worship? <clears throat> As we look at Scripture on the whole, we see a number of things uh, that answer this question. New covenant worship is, first of all, covenantal. Right? It's covenantal worship. God always deals with man by way of covenants. We look at Adam, and by virtue of his creation, he is in covenant with God Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. Uh, we look at the Abrahamic covenant. We look at the Davidic covenant. We look at the covenants in Scripture. This is the way that God deals with man. And even for us, right, the New Testament that we speak of, it means new covenant, right? We are the new covenant church. We think about how God has assembled the old covenant people, right? We can learn from, these, from this reality. Think about how God has assembled those old covenant people and what clues can we see um, there in the old covenant, the Old Testament. Recall in Exodus, right? In Exodus. Remember that the Israelites were assembled, remember, as their uh, as they leave, as they're delivered from Egypt, and they're assembled at the mountain, and God makes covenants with them. Recall. How did God establish the pattern of worship at Sinai, Mount Sinai, as they do this? Right? It's very important for us. Many would say that we have uh, no clues, no indicators, no data that we can draw from. Well, I, in contradistinction to that, I would say we have much data. 
How did God establish the pattern of worship at Mount Sinai as the delivered people of God come in covenant with him? How did God establish this? Uh, the comparison is made. Uh, this is important, and we know that this is significant because we look at places like Galatians 4 or in Hebrews, tells us that that was a type, right? That was a type. Exodus 20, what is the pattern? I would encourage you to read this account, Exodus 20 and forward, in regards to what the Lord did as he calls the people whom he has delivered up to covenant with him. Um, maybe read these passages later this Lord's Day and throughout the week, um, if you will. But first, what happens? In the pattern, we see what? God calls, right? He calls his people. God initiates the relationship. And this is the case always. He identifies it, right? He defines it, and he calls the assembly, right? Prior to this, in Exodus 19, God told his people to get ready to meet with him, prepare to meet with him. God is Lord, and he calls them to assembly. Then in verse 2, God cleanses his people. He cleanses them by delivering them from the old to the new situation. God cleanses them by deliverance. He delivers them and he cleanses them. They are a new reality. Exodus 20, verse 2, I am the Lord, it says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, right? This is history. This is redemptive history as God unfolds his plan. He says, this is what I did. Now you are my holy people. He initiates the people in the relationship, and he cleanses them so they can partake with him in covenant. And then next, he does what? Verse 3, he gives his word. He gives the law to the people. He says, therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. And he goes on and he gives the ten words, the ten commandments. And they are thereby consecrated as his people. And then after this description of what goes on in Exodus 24, we have, recall the elders, right? Those 70 elders. At the conclusion of it all, the representatives did what? They went up and they ate with God. They supped with him. In a meal, they communed with him, the Lord Almighty, in a meal. <clears throat> And for the context, let's turn to Exodus 24, verses 9, verses 9 to 11. Exodus 24, to read this, uh, so we can frame for ourselves the reality of what the Lord did. Exodus 24, starting verse 9, it says, Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the seventy and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. Right, the culmination of this encounter this covenanting lord he calls them up and what's the result of this 
It's peace. There is peace. And then we see, if we continue in, in Exodus, what? We see the contributions made for the tabernacle. They were taken, and then they are commissioned to build, concluding with what? The benediction in Exodus 39, where it says, and Moses blessed them. And Moses blessed them. God commissions Israel. He commissions them that they would be sent out, commissioned in his name, in the name of the Lord. They're sent out into the world. And we see a similar pattern in new covenant worship. It is covenantal. It's covenantal worship. In the next, if we look at what the pattern that's laid out in Scripture, we see that new covenant worship is temple worship. It's temple worship. Right, not a physical temple, not physical at a place with physical blood, but it was that all those things that we see in the old covenant were a picture of what was truly taking place. They were a stand-in and a pointer of what was actually taking place. Right, Moses is given a pattern, and the temple has a pattern. It's the same for the temple as it was in the tabernacle. What was that pattern? What was the blueprint that we see there? Hebrews 8 tells us, particularly verses 4 and 5, that the pattern was a heavenly pattern. And we see that the priest served as a shadow of the actual thing, the real thing, right? Type and anti-type. We don't go to the old, but to the true temple, right? Because Jesus is the true temple. And when we come to worship, we come in Christ, as his people. We don't just come to the temple, we come as the temple. Because God's presence doesn't just dwell in Christ, but in us too, because we are what? United to Christ. <clears throat> you are now the temple. We assemble as the temple of God. Right? And you'll remember Ephesians 2. We don't have time to look at it now, but Ephesians 2 talks about this, right? There are no longer those who are far off and those who are near. But we are a new man. We are one in Christ. We're being built together in what? The temple of God. New covenant worship is temple worship because you worship in Christ and you are the temple. And so let's see this temple, uh, this pattern in the Old Testament, right? This Old Testament temple. What does it say? What is the description of this pattern, right? And so we look at 2 Corinthians 5. Again, I encourage you to read all these passages later in their full context, <clears throat> this Lord's Day, fill up your Lord's Day, praising the Lord, taking in his word into yourselves, <clears throat> into your hearts and minds. But in 2 Chronicles 5, right, at the completion of the temple, what do we see? What does it look like, this pattern? What is it that they go through? Because of all, the temp all of the Old Testament, what they did and what they built was a pattern of the, of the heavenly Let's look at the temple and see this pattern. 2 Chronicles 5, verses 2 to 5, have what? God calls them to assemble. And then in verse 6, he cleanses them with sacrifices so entrance can be made by the priests. And then verse 7 and following, 
The priests enter into the presence of God. The people sing the praises outside. They magnify his name as the cleansed people of God. And then we move into uh, chapter 6. God preaches his word through the king. And the word of God comes to the people, and the people respond to it in prayer and in song. And then what? God sends fire from heaven to consume the sacrifices, and they are taken up to him, to God. And it's God's way of saying when this happens, that he is there. He is there to commune with them. He accepts their worship and their sacrifices. You are in me and I am in you. And the people eat from the altar and take the sacrifice and God breathes it in, the smoke that goes up from the altar, and he takes in that sacrifice. And there's communion between God and his people. And God ultimately does what? He dismisses his people. He commissions them. He commissions them back into the world for service to their homeland. And this pattern has reverberations, right? It has echoes in the New Testament because it was all preparatory, right? We talked about this again and again and again, right? We have the, the preparatory word and then the word, Jesus Christ, in the Gospels, and then the explanatory word. This is all preparatory. It's to prepare them. Right? It has echoes because it's a reflection of the heavenly given as type and fulfilled in Christ. And remember what the Apostle Peter says. Right, The Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2 says, You are being built into a spiritual temple, a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That word for house, you're being built into a spiritual house or temple. It's the same word. It's bait in Hebrew, oikos or temple, right, in, in Hebrew. It means a dwelling. And if you live there, it's a house. If a king lives there, it's a palace. If God lives there, it's a temple. If it's his dwelling, it's a temple. Peter says you are being built up into a certain type of house. What kind is it? It's a house where there is a royal priesthood, one where you may offer spiritual sacrifices to God through Christ. He says they are living stones. They've been assembled, built into the temple, and God's Spirit is truly with you now. And you're before God's throne. And it's your duty, it's your service, it's your job to offer to him spiritual sacrifice. So we see this pattern throughout Scripture. We see it in, uh, uh, in the covenant that the Lord makes. We see it in the temple, right? the structure before the temple. And then we see it also that the new covenant, that new covenant worship is based on sacrifices. Right? New covenant worship is sacrificial worship. And that's strange for most of us. That's strange. Uh, we don't think about this very often. Because we read in Hebrews about what? We read about Christ's sacrifice. It's once and for all. Complete. 
It's a done deal. And we believe when we confess it, yay and amen, we do again and again. It is true. And it's a gross offense to assert that Christ is re-sacrificed or even represented as sacrifice again and again. That is gross and distasteful. And uh, there's a gag reflex that comes from that kind of uh, false thinking. And so we think that because Christ is the once and for all sacrifice, that sacrifice is done away with, right? But what did we read in Romans chapter 12? What does Paul say? Certain types of sacrifice are over for sure. There are no more bodily, bloody animal sacrifices because that's never what God wanted or intended uh, anyway. He says instead, you offer, right, Romans, the Lord says through Paul and Romans, you offer yourselves as a living sacrifice. Sacrifice. You're here in the temple, and sacrifices are to be brought. And what is the sacrifice? It's you. It's you. Believer in God, worshiper of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's you. You are the sacrifice. You are to come this morning as a sacrifice to God. Present yourself as a living sacrifice. And as Hebrews 13 says, the praise of your lips even is a spiritual and reasonable sacrifice to give to God, right? The praise of your lips is a sacrifice to him. So if New Testament worship is sacrificial worship, what is the pattern of the sacrifices? We've seen the pattern of the covenant and of the temple. But what is the pattern of the Levitical sacrifice in the Old Testament, right? The shadow uh, of the reality. What's the pattern that we see there? Leviticus 1, as example, right? We read in our Old Testament reading. Notice, and we see the repetition there. The first thing in verse 1 and verse 2, God calls the worshiper near. He calls them, and they come in an appropriate manner. God is the one who initiates. Again, same thing. And he tells them how sacrifices are to be given. And the next thing we see is a confession of sin. The worshiper is to what? The worshiper is to die in the animal that he brings representatively, right? He is to die in that sacrifice. And so as he's entering worship, the first thing he does is bring the sacrifice, and he puts his hand on its head, and it is accepted on his behalf as expiation for him. He identifies himself with this sacrifice. He knows that he is to be the sacrifice for God. And notice how Paul puts this right. He isn't saying anything new. He's just repeating the pattern that we're given in the Old Testament. He doesn't say anything different. He says, you are a living sacrifice. In Leviticus, they knew and they said the same thing, but they did it via, right, by way of the animals, the animal sacrifices. They knew that because of sin, they were the ones who needed to be sacrificed because of their sin. But they put their hands on the animal, and the animals, what? Substituted for them. They were a substitute for them. And the animal is put to death on his behalf. 
And he received atonement from that animal's death. And then what happens next? The animal is what? The animal is cut up and prepared to be consumed by God. Verse 6 of Leviticus 1. He shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. Right? And so the animal is prepared to be consumed by God for that communion with God. But first it's cut up. And it's no accident that you recall what Hebrews says about the Word of God. Right? It says the Word of God is living and active and sharper than what? Than the two-edged sword. Right? And the two-edged sword is so sharp, it can divide between soul and spirit. And notice the language. What does it divide? Between joint and marrow. And so Paul uses the sacrificial service language in his description of what's going on. And Hebrews says, <clears throat> when you come under the word, it does that to you. That's what it does. It cuts you off. It prepares you to stand before God rightly. It exposes you for who you are. Naked before him. Bare before him. Without pretense. Without lie. In honesty before him. And why? So that you may commune with him. And be at peace with him. And he shows you who you are. And you respond in obedience, right? Leviticus 1, verses 7 to 9. It says, The sacrifice is burned and consumed. And see what it says. It says, And it shall become right, a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord. A sweet-smelling aroma before the Lord. They're burning the sacrifice so that sacrifice can get up to God. They know that God dwells in the heavens. And this is his footstool here on earth, and they burn the sacrifice so it will get up to him. This is the mindset. And again, what is that sacrifice? It's the worshiper, not the animal. The animal's in place of the worshiper. The worshiper is upon the altar. The worshiper is taken up into heaven in the sacrifice. And because it's been prepared rightly, God, what, he breathes the worshiper in and is pleased and it is again a sweet smelling aroma to the Lord God Almighty and then the worshiper is what blessed and he's renewed as he's forgiven and peace is made with him and we can look at the pattern of the other we're not going to but the pattern of the other offerings and sacrifices in Leviticus and they all have a similar pattern, similar pattern. And this pattern reminds us that if you're going to offer a series of sacrifices to God, the first kind that you have to offer is what? You have to offer, in the first place, a sin offering. Because there's a distance between you and God. We have a distance between ourselves and the Lord God Almighty. There's enmity between uh, us because of our sin there is estrangement. But that sin offering, it expiates that. It takes it away. It takes away that. And this is followed by the burnt offering. And it's an expression of the complete person that's now been cleansed by the Lord. Been cleansed and made new from an old 
situation to a new situation. They are new. They are cleansed. And the burnt offering shows the person, just like that whole animal, is going to be chopped up and offered to God. They are to give their whole selves entirely to God, a wholehearted, whole life sacrifice. And wow, doesn't that sound familiar? Maybe Romans 12. It's exactly what's going on. You are to present yourselves as a living sacrifice. This is your reasonable service in worship, liturgy to God. And why? Because he forgave your sins. He showed you mercy. And then lastly, the peace offering is given, which is an expression of what? Of thanksgiving. Peace offering is an expression of thanksgiving. Right? The old fashioned word for it is Eucharist, right? Which means a good giving, right? It's a good grace. It's that which the Lord's Supper is, right? We, this is called the Eucharist, right? Historically. Because that's what the word in Greek means it's a thanksgiving. <clears throat> it's a thanksgiving. And it's also a seal to them of the covenant fellowship with the Lord because what? He is willing to eat a sacramental meal. With them. And there's that pattern, once again, that we see. And so we've seen that New Testament worship is covenantal, that it's analogous, it's temple worship, and it's sacrificial worship. And then finally, and surely, and certainly, it is gospel worship. It's gospel worship. New Testament is gospel worship. We're gathered here today through what? Because of the gospel, the gospel. We have believed that Jesus Christ has brought us together. And how does the gospel work? Do we just like stroll on up with our own initiative to the Lord? No. God calls the sinner, as Romans 8 9 tells us, he calls the sinner, and when he does, his heart is made new as your heart was made new when he called you. And he confesses his sins, and he repents and believes, as you have confessed your sins and have repented and believed. And then God makes a pronouncement about you as you do so, that the sinner afterwards is converted. And he says, you are justified in my sight. You are holy now. There's no longer enmity between us. That's been taken care of. And after God has made the sinner holy, what is the sinner's duty? To be changed and sanctified by what? By God, by the word of God. And why does God do that? He does it to prepare you for glory when you will commune with him forever and ever and ever. You know, there's a reason that the Puritans would say things like, all of God's providence and sovereign dealings with you are tuning your heart for glory. Right? It's readying you for that time to prepare you for glory, where you will commune with him forever and ever and ever. And in this lifetime, 
Before that time, we get a foretaste, right? A foretaste of that reality in the table, right? In the Lord's Supper, in communion with him, Lord's Day by Lord's Day by Lord's Day. And so we have this pattern that we see again and again, even in the gospel, right? He, God calls, we give confession, he cleanses us, he consecrates us to himself, and then he comes and communes with us as his people. And then notice, he didn't just save us for ourselves, right? Not just this individualistic, pragmatic reality. He didn't save you just for yourself. What does he do next? He sends you back into the world in his service, in his commission to you, to be a blessing to the nations in his name for his glory. And all of these things, the pattern of the Bible, inform our order of worship, our liturgy. God's given no other order. It's not different from the tabernacle to the temple to the sacrificial system to the covenant that he's given or in the gospel. It's always the same order. And that should be a clue for us. It should be a clue for what we should follow when we come. It should be according to the pattern set forth in Scripture, laid down, ingrained in the hard drive of our minds as we read such a thing. And that's why our liturgy follows this pattern. Right? First, God calls us into worship, just as he did in the mount, on the mountain, and in the sacrificial system, and in the temple worship, just as he called you in the gospel. Right? He calls you. And so he calls you at the beginning of service through a man, through a flawed minister, to come and worship in an appropriate manner, He calls us to worship. It is a command, not an offer. God says, come on my appointed day and come in my appointed way. And then second, God cleanses us once he's called us again. And that's why immediately after we've given praise to God, he's called us in his presence, we come with thanksgiving, and we realize what? We shouldn't be here. We shouldn't be here. Did you ever realize that? That as he shows us his grace, he shows his grace to you and to me, and we recognize the holiness of God. And you should reflexively realize you don't belong here. How could we come before God Almighty in his purity and holiness? We're not holy. You're not fit to be in God's presence. No, none of us are. Notice what happens in Scripture. When people come before his presence, what do they do? Do they set up a coffee bar in the back to come and hang out with the Lord? This is our friend. What do they do? They are devastated at their unworthiness, as we see, and they admit their unworthiness, even as we are to do the same. We approach God in his infinite holiness and perfection of power and majesty. We should be overwhelmed. You should be overwhelmed at the reality of these things. And to the extent that we're not, it's the extent that we're not paying attention. We don't realize the things that Scripture tells us. Think of Isaiah. Isaiah, the prophet, 
Isaiah the prophet, <clears throat> he was the worst sinner in Israel, right? No. Who's Isaiah? He was a holy man in Israel. How did he respond at being in God's presence? He fell on his face. He fell on his face and he's undone. And what does God do? What does God do? After he calls Isaiah, he confesses, right? This beautiful, glorious confession. And then God sends an angel with the burning coal, remember, to do what? To cleanse his lips, to cleanse him. And he pardons his sin, and he, he lets him come and fellowship before him. And then God does what? He gives him an assignment, and he sends him out. He commissioned him. He sent out into the world to serve the Lord. And there's the pattern again. Same pattern. Even as you come into his presence every Lord's Day at his call, and the first thing you should and must and have to do is to praise him and confess your sins before him. Right? We don't go through this confession of sin because we think we want to be old-fashioned or think it's cool or different or it makes us feel better than others. Right? That's not why we do that. Rather, this should expose who we are week after week after week as we come. And you may or may not realize this, but some people will avoid churches like ours because of this confession of sin. I know because I've been here and I've had the conversation. And some people read our order of worship and they think, I can't read this every week. What a downer. I can't read this. I'm not that bad. I've sinned and what I've done and what, what I've left undone by my thoughts and words and deeds. I don't want to hear that. I come here to feel good. I come here for me. I've heard the words. But we confess those things. Why? Because they're true. They're true. That's who we are before our perfect God, our holy God. We don't obey him like we should. But just as God showed mercy to the holy man of Israel, the prophet Isaiah, he shows mercy to us. He shows us mercy. And he cleanses us in Christ. And he not only does that, but he cleanses us, cleanses us, and then he pronounces what? He pronounces to us verbally through the minister and indeed from his word, you are clean. We're clean. You're accepted in my sight. Come and worship. You are freed. You're justified. And that makes all the difference in the world for you struggling, suffering, dirty sinner, all of us. Makes all the world in the all the difference in the world. So there's a gospel logic, as it's been said, to our worship. We're being told again and again. Because why? We need to be told again and again who we are and how we are who we are. God is praised and he's magnified and he's worshiped. Praise God as the result. And so we come at God's call and confess our sins because we need to be cleansed. Yes, even us who have forgiveness in Christ. 
because we sin ongoingly. We need the, the, the truth ongoingly, right? The gospel is not some um, once needed remedy. We do this every week because this is what you need to do every day of your life. The gospel is for every moment, every moment by moment by moment of your life. And you need to be converted again and again and again. You need to know that Christ forgives sinners over and over and over and over for those whom he's called to be his people. And then after God has cleansed us, what happens? He consecrates us. Just like when his people covenanted with God on the mountain, that pattern, he gave them the law, his word, his law, like that. And after we confess our sins, we sit under what? The word of God. Because we are now his holy people. And he's going to tell us, now that I've forgiven and cleansed you, you are not to be like the world anymore. It's not who you are. I've cleansed you. I've called you out. I've made you holy, separated from that reality. I've recreated you for what? For good works in Christ. Therefore, hear my word and believe and rightly respond. Be consecrated. Be chopped up like that sacrifice. Let the word of God expose you for who you are. And we say what in response? Lord, whatever you say, I will do. I'm your servant. Here I am. Send me. And after he's chopped us up with his word, after he's exposed our hearts thereby, he expects a proper response. And that's why after we preach, we pray that congregational prayer. And we sing and we confess together our faith And when we do, we're saying what? We're saying, we've heard you, Lord. We've heard you. We've heard your word and we believe it. We believe in you, the God that brought that word. And we believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker in heaven and earth. And we go on and we confess our faith and we give our offerings. And we're saying our whole selves, Lord, are now yours. Yours. We're living sacrifices for you. Take us. Take us. Then after we respond to the word of God, gloriously, what does he do? He communes with us. He communes with us. He's told us what he desires of us. He's for, he tells us that, and he tells us that we are forgiven. And he tells us that at the end of it all, He comes down from on high, truly by the power of the Spirit, and he sits at table with us at the supper, with us. It's not theater that we go through. It's not perfunctory. It's not mechanistic. The Lord comes down and sups with us, and he feeds us the body and blood of his Son, our Savior, that we might live We might have life. We might grow as his people. And he tells the table, what? What is he telling us? Everything is okay between me and you. Everything, we're at peace. I am at peace with you. I'm your father. You are my child, and I love you. 
We have fellowship one with another, and we will have fellowship one with another forever and ever and ever, dear child. I love you, and you are mine. So if you doubted it in the middle of the week, doubt it no more. I am your loving father, and I'm willing to sit at the same table with you and call you mine and my child. It's a glorious thing, communion of the Lord. And then finally, after we sat and have supped with God, he what? He commissions us, commissions us. He sends us out with his blessing. And it is all these things for what? He breaks us down and he rebuilds us in here. In order that we might go out there as living sacrifices again and give ourselves as Christ did to give our lives for the life of the world, to give ourselves in sacrificial service. An example. But we won't have the power to do that if we don't know the gospel here in worship. The only way we can give ourselves freely to those out there, to those who are dying, and even those who hate us, is that we've experienced the gospel in here, right? in here. And then individually, day by day by day, in your own private worship. Only then can we say, all that I am is yours. All that I am is yours. Take my life. Let me give it to my family, to the world outside, to my calling, my vocation, whatever you called me to. All of it, dear Lord, that you might be glorified. And so God puts his name on us in the blessing, in the benediction, and he sends us out and he says, now go serve me in the world. Go serve me for my glory. And do you see that in it all, all of this, that the liturgy is really nothing less than the pattern of your whole life, dear Christian, as you believed in him. It's a reenactment. It's a, it's a, it's a dramatization of what we, what's happened to you. And it happens week after week after week. right? Just like Passover, you'll recall in the Old Testament. When they sat down for it, they weren't just pretending. It wasn't theater. It wasn't performative. <clears throat> They were going through what was the reality of their life and their experience and their history. It happened back there, and therefore they would reenact and dramatize what happened so that they would know who they really are. They were God's people who were delivered from Egypt. And he is for them. He's for them. And you do that week after week in this building right, in this building, you reenact what God has done for you. He's called you. He's cleansed you. He has consecrated you. He's communed with you and commissioned you, right? This is your life. This is our life, our lives as believers. It is your life on Sunday, his day, this day, but it's also your life Monday through Saturday as well. And if you learn this pattern and it's ingrained to your core here through worship, then it will make sense 
to you on Monday morning when all of your sins come flooding before you again and you say, what am I to do? What am I to do? And what do you do, brothers and sisters? What do you do? Well, you say, God has called me out of darkness to live in the light. And so I'll confess my sins and I'll believe the gospel. And I'll live under his word. And I'll commune with God day by day by day through prayer. And I'll give myself to him as a living sacrifice to whatever he calls me to. That's what you do. That's what we do. This isn't just for this hour, right? This is your life always. But in this hour, as an assembled people, as an assembled people, we together, we remember, we reenact, we go through this dramatization of that reality, that truth. And we do it in the very presence of God who has done it all on our behalf. Notice again the words of the Apostle Paul. You are to give a reasonable service and you are to give yourself as a living sacrifice. Right? Those are heavy words. Heavy words. It's very different from that trite sentiment that says, I go to worship at this or that church because I like this or that music or that style or how it makes me feel. If you understand and you grasp the depth and weight and glory of what's going on in worship, and I pray that you do, you will experience a taste of the heavenly reality week after week after week in those trite and silly things will be as nothing to you as they should. And as you give yourself up, you see the paradox of the gospel, right? It's an apparent paradox that God will always give you more. Always give you more. His grace, his mercy, his glory will never be expended, will never be exhausted. And as you do so, worship will be an experience. An experience. Not because you have some inner depth, deep feeling that the music moves you in the right way, but because you gave yourself up to God and his pattern and remembered the gospel and relived the gospel. And God was here to tell you that you are his and he is yours forever, forever. And we're reminded and strengthened about this uh, uh, reality week by week by week. And that should give you enough power and strength and grace to make it through six more days until we can visit again here and have a taste of our eternal rest one more time to get us through where we'll be with him forever and ever. And we give ourselves up to him in sweet praise for the rest of our lives. This is our worship because it is our community life. Right, And you know what binds us together? It's that God has called us. And he's cleansed us and he's consecrated us. 
That's what made you one loaf, as Paul says, in one body. And so we go through again and again. We go through this again and again, and we rehearse that again, and we remember who we are in Christ. And God recommunicates those realities to us, impresses them upon us, and we know, and we should know, beyond a doubt, as we walk out of those doors, that Christ has died and risen and lives for you. And therefore, we are at peace with God. And we can now live in this world as in the next. For Him. For Him. What a glorious Savior we have. What a glorious and gracious King Christ is for us, our Savior and Redeemer. And so remember this always, brothers and sisters. Remember and give praise and thanks as you live your lives whole-souled completely for this King and Redeemer and Savior, Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you for your mercy towards us. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to believe what you've told us in your word, that we are We've died to sin. We've been raised to walk in newness of life for your glory, for all of our lives. Lord, help us to help us to trust you. Help us to believe the gospel every day. And Lord, thereby transform us evermore into the glorious image of our Savior and our King for our good, for the, for the good of the world. And for your glory, we ask this in Christ's name.